Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is episode 4, What is Work, part 2. In the last episode, we began our examination of this question with an exploration of the difficulties that surround any attempt to define what work is and what it isn't. Most people have an instinctive answer to the question, what is work, but translating that instinctive knowledge into an articulate formulation is frustratingly elusive. Work is, but isn't only, working for a living, that is to say, waged labour. There are many forms of work that do not result in the generation of income. Moreover, when we use the word work, we must be conscious of the value-loading it contains, of the positive attributes which it potentially ascribes both to work and those who work, and to the social prejudices and unequal power relationships which can follow as a result. In a similar vein, we must be careful that our definition of work does not confuse culturally or historically specific realities with the inherent nature of work itself. Many people may find work tedious, repetitive and unfulfilling, but that does not mean this experience reflects the inherent characteristics or nature of work itself. In addition, it needs to be remembered that words like work and employment are not necessarily synonymous. One may be employed by an activity that is not necessarily work. Finally, we examine the problematic nature of the centrality which work has come to assume in modern life. The promise of the good life, which the ideology of hard work offers us, often turns out to be both illusory and dehumanising. Yet so entrenched is this myth in our social psyche, that it not only carries with it the assumed virtues of moral superiority, it becomes the very basis upon which we invest our self-identity and sense of worth. The failure of the myth to live up to the reality can then have a devastating effect on self-esteem and self-value, negating any benefits from participating in the myth of the self-improving qualities of hard work. Moreover, it can become the very basis from which exploitation proceeds via our co-option as self-exploiters. We link our very humanity with the social or institutional prerogatives that turn the whole of life into a 24-7 production line. So trying to answer the question, what is work, is not only not as straightforward as we might think, it is in fact so fraught with complexities and qualifications that we might very well wonder, why bother? After all, 
if most people have an instinctive understanding of what work is, why don't we just assume people know what we mean when we say work and just get on with it? We dealt with the problem of just assuming in the last episode, but more relevantly we need to understand what we mean by work precisely because a theology of work cannot be constructed until we know what it is that we are addressing. If a theology of work is a response from the point of view of faith to the reality and centrality of work in human life, then we have to understand what exactly that reality and centrality are before we can respond to it. In other words, we have to know what it is we are dealing with before we can deal with it. So to begin, what is work? The encyclical Laborum Exercens, issued in 1989 by Pope John Paul II, defined work as any activity by man, whether manual or intellectual, whatever its nature or circumstances, and elsewhere as any human activity that can and must be recognised as work in the midst of all the many activities of which man is capable and to which he is predisposed by his very nature. The sheer broadness of this definition illustrates the very difficulty of trying to define what work is. As the theologian Miroslav Volf noted, whatever else might be said about this definition, what it effectively amounted to was a statement that work is whatever we want it to be. Conscious of the limitations and deficiencies of this definition, Wolf made his own attempt at defining work in his book, Work in the Spirit. According to Wolf, work is honest, purposeful, and methodologically specified social activity whose goal is the creation of products or states of affairs that can satisfy the needs of working individuals or their co-creatures, or if primarily an end in itself, activity that is necessary for acting individuals to meet their needs, apart from the need for the activity itself. This is, you'll agree, quite a mouthful, and Wolf himself acknowledges that it is a formal definition of work. In other words, it suggests the characteristics that need to be present in order for an activity to be defined as work. This being the case, it is a definition which Wolf claims does not suggest anything about what we might regard as the normative condition of work, that is to say, whether or not work is or should be consistent with human dignity. Personally, on that last point, I'm not so sure, but I'll get to that in a minute. For the moment, let's try and break down Wolf's definition into its component parts. Firstly, Wolf argues that work is honest, that is, it is activity which does not involve any criminal or unethical or immoral purpose or intent. Leaving aside any argument about whether or not criminal necessarily means illegal, or by whose light something might be deemed immoral or unethical, clearly Wolf is stating that work is activity which does not involve any improper gain or advantage or result in any loss or diminution to oneself or another. 
This immediately strikes out all activities which, though they might involve labour or toil or elements such as planning and leadership that might otherwise be considered parts of work, are nonetheless directed toward dishonest or injurious purposes. Of course, some people might argue that this includes a croupier working in a casino, a pharmacist who dispenses contraception, or a soldier enlisted in an army. But in these and many other instances, I think it could also be argued that the labour involved in such occupations is itself honest, even if we don't necessarily approve of the institutional purpose within which that labour occurs. On the other hand, a gang who rob a bank are clearly engaged in a dishonest and injurious activity, regardless of whatever skills they bring to bear or tasks they have to perform in order to execute the robbery. Wolf's next point is that work is purposeful. In other words, work has some object or desired outcome beyond its own performance. Thus, the purpose of all the operations performed along a car assembly line is to produce a car. Likewise, the purpose of a financial planner scrutinising a client's accounts is to ascertain the strengths and weaknesses of the client's financial position and tailor an investment or savings strategy to suit their situation. Of course, many activities are purposeful without being work. Reading a book is an activity whose purposes range from self-education through to entertainment or even just filling in some idle time. But the point that Wolf is making here is that work is not just activity for activity's sake. Work has some essential rationale that distinguishes it as work and not as something else. Wolf says that work is methodologically specified. In other words, work is activity which operates according to some plan or scheme of operation that enables the activity itself to fulfil the purpose for which it is performed. Thus, to take the example of the car assembly line, each activity along the length of the assembly line is subject to a concrete set of instructions and methods directing the performance of each task so that the ultimate purpose, constructing a car, is completed. But let's also look at an example not belonging to the world of waged labour. Let's take the case of a parent looking after their child. The parent might not necessarily have a set of instructions from which to operate, but within the scheme of childcare will fall such objectives as preventing the child from accessing choke hazards preventing the child from acquiring infections, and ensuring the child has a nourishing and age-appropriate diet. Thus, the scheme of operation within the overall objective of childcare will involve tasks such as placing potential choke hazards on high shelves out of the child's reach, changing soiled nappies and applying ointment to any infected areas, and either going shopping in order to purchase food for the child to consume, or preparing meals made from ingredients sourced for that purpose. This is all, to borrow Volt's phrase, methodologically specified activity. Volf argues that work is social activity, by which he does not mean what we might think of as a social occasion, 
a family outing, for example, or a party with friends. Rather, Wolf means two things. Firstly, that work has a social orientation, and secondly, that work is a collaborative enterprise. Taking the first point, the social nature of work is revealed in the fact that its purpose exists to engage and meet the needs of a wider group of people than the person or persons who perform the work. Thus, the purpose of building a car is to enable people to travel independently of mass transit systems. Likewise, an artist working alone to create a sculpture nonetheless wishes to engage a wider social group in the aesthetic, technical and narrative characteristics of the art they are creating. Work is social precisely because it is other-oriented. Its end product is intended for the engagement and use of a wider group than the people or persons by whom the work itself is undertaken. Secondly, work is a collaborative enterprise inasmuch as the participation by workers in the wider social sphere necessarily brings them into contact with the work performed by others. Thus, no single worker assembles a car in its entirety. Rather, that entirety is the sum product of a group of workers operating sequentially and collaboratively in order to produce the final product, a fully assembled car. Even the artist working alone requires others to produce and supply the materials with which they could create their art, or even more directly, needs to collaborate with others who can supply the space and conditions necessary to display their art to maximal effect. The end product of every activity that is work has a line of supply and labour trailing behind it that ultimately amounts, however indirectly, to a collaborative and hence a social enterprise. Wolf states that work is activity whose goal is to produce products or states of affairs that meet the needs of the workers themselves or their co-creatures. In respect of the first part of the statement, we have already dealt with this. The goal of work performed on a car assembly line is to produce a car that meets the workers' and other individuals' need for independent travel. The purpose of an artist producing a sculpture is to meet individuals' need for aesthetic, intellectual and cultural enrichment, as well as the artist's own need for self-realisation through creative expression. The goal of a parent buying food for their child, or ingredients to prepare a meal for that child, is to meet the child's need for nourishment, as well as the existential need for love that is characteristic of being a parent. So the meaning of that part of Wolf's statement is somewhat self-evident. But what does Wolf mean by co-creatures? In part, Wolf means our fellow human beings, given that from the point of view of Christian theology, as created beings with a biologically determined lifespan, we have a creaturely existence. But beyond this, Wolf also means non-human living beings. In other words, it is an inherent characteristic of work that it meets the needs not only of the humans by whom it is performed, or a wider social group of human beings, but also the non-human creatures with whom we share this planet. According to Wolf, work properly understood 
embraces and includes both social and ecological responsibility. At this stage, I would like to jump back to a point I made earlier. That point was that I am somewhat sceptical about Volt's claim that normative values such as work being consistent with human dignity are not to be construed as necessary or inherent characteristics that make an activity work. In other words, in just the same way that Wolf says that simply because many people experience work as tedious and dull does not mean we should assume that either tedium or dullness are essential characteristics of work, so he is saying that we should not conclude that human dignity is a necessary characteristic of work either. Yet, in declaring that the essential characteristics of work are honesty, purposefulness, need fulfilment, social orientation, and social and ecological responsibility, it seems to me that Wolf is, however indirectly, making the case that work is, in fact, consistent with human or more widely creaturely dignity. Individuals who are forced to engage in activity in conditions of economic exploitation, of physical danger, in order to facilitate a criminal enterprise, or in ways that result in ecological degradation, are hardly doing so in conditions commensurate with human dignity. Their own particular activity might be done honestly, or result in products or conditions that meet a social need, but the destructive effect of the activity on themselves and others, especially when this activity occurs in the context of compulsion or exploitation, means that its overall character is neither honest, nor meaningful, nor social, nor responsible. The activity might be described as labour or toil, but whether it constitutes work under the terms Wolf sets out is a debatable point. Which, of course, means that Wolf may be right, or he may not be. But as I said above, I have my doubts about this part of his definition. This leads us with the second half of Wolf's definition, that work, even if it is primarily an end in itself, is activity that is necessary to satisfy the needs of the person by whom it is undertaken, needs that exist apart from the need to perform the activity itself. I have to admit, if I am sceptical about Wolf's denial that any normative values such as consistency with human dignity are associated with the necessary characteristics of work, I am even more sceptical about this part of Wolf's definition, largely because it seems to me Wolf is trying to have a bet either way. Wolf argues that his definition of work distinguishes it from other activities such as leisure through the essential characteristic of instrumentality. In other words, that work is a means to ends that lie outside the activity itself. A parent buying food to make a meal to feed their child would be an example of work because the purpose of the activity is to facilitate care for the child through the provision of nourishment. The end purpose of the activity, care for the child, lies beyond the performance of the activity itself. The parent is not going shopping simply in order to shop. 
And yet in the second half of his definition, Wolf says that work might be an activity that is primarily an end in itself. That word, primarily, seems to me to be Wolf's attempt at a get-out clause. That is to say, I think he recognises the contradiction in insisting that work is a means to an end beyond itself, while on the other hand conceding that it might be an end in itself. The word primarily is used here to suggest that even in the context of the end in itself, work might have other ends beyond itself that are, as it were, secondary ends. Yet it seems to my mind that work is either an end in itself or it isn't. It's a bit like that old adage that you can't be a little bit pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. To be sure, an activity that is an end in itself might have side effects or unintended consequences, but that is not the same as secondary ends. An activity that is an end in itself is, it seems to me, axiomatically a closed circle. It requires no other ends beyond its own performance. If I spend an afternoon making a model plane, the purpose of the activity is the making of the plane. It has no other end or purpose beyond its construction. To be sure, aesthetic appreciation and a sense of satisfaction at a job well done, as well as potentially sticky fingers from having spilled glue all over my hands, are also possible outcomes of this activity. But these are byproducts and consequences of this activity, and not the end to which the activity was bent. The constructing of the model plane is the end in itself. It is part of what makes this activity a hobby and not a work. In the final analysis, it seems to me that the only purpose the second half of Wolf's definition of work serves is to muddy the waters. Wolf himself notes that the distinction between work and activities such as hobbies are not always clear, and indeed may involve some measure of overlap. Nonetheless, I think Wolf is fundamentally correct when he points to instrumentality as one of work's defining characteristics. Work, it seems to me, is activity that serves as a means to ends beyond the end of its own performance. To suggest it might be an end in itself with secondary ends, I think just makes the difficult task of defining work all the more confusing. So where does this leave us? Not, I think, with a clear definition of work, but with an understanding of one of work's chief characteristics, instrumentality. Work is activity which serves as a means to ends beyond its own performance, essentially through the production of goods or states of affairs that satisfy the needs of the human community and the non-human ecology. As such, work is activity that is honest, methodologically directed, socially oriented, purposeful, and socially and ecologically responsible. I would also like to make the argument that, given the above, work contains normative values such as consistency with human dignity. Wolf and others might disagree, but I think that dignity is inherent in the very characteristics of work which Wolf ascribes to it. 
The net effect of this definition is that Christian theology qualifies the instrumentality that is characteristic of work. It is instrumentality that serves the purpose not merely of satisfying needs, but of satisfying needs in such a way that enhances human and wider ecological flourishing. In other words, work is a mechanism for giving expression to human desire in a way that makes possible human authenticity and the fullness of life. Activity which militates against this qualifying context of work may be labour or toil, but it is not work as this is understood by Christian faith. The significance of this theological qualification of work's instrumentality is that it clashes with modernity's propensity to atomize life, fragmenting it into separate spheres of activity that each contain their own morality and which have no relationship to or bearing upon one another. Christians, however, confess God to be Lord of the whole of reality, and thus the theological insistence upon the universality of human dignity immediately brings all the spheres of human life into relationship with one another. Work is not merely a means to an end, but both an affirmation of human desire and a characterization of that desire as the facilitation of human and ecological flourishing. Thus work as a sphere of human activity stands in a direct relationship with all other spheres of human existence. As Wolf notes, the question of how we function in one sphere of life is answered by how we function in the whole of life. Work is no different from any other aspect of human existence and is thus a worthy subject of theological exploration. But we have only just begun that exploration. In the next episode, we continue to examine the question, what is work? Okay, it's time to pause once more and draw breath again. We've still got plenty of ground to cover, but it can wait until the next episode. For now, however, some housekeeping matters. Those of you who listen through the opening and closing theme music will know that I direct listeners to this podcast companion website for more information. That more information includes links to this podcast social media pages on Facebook and Twitter which I hope you will both like and follow. The webpage also contains an email address to which you can send any feedback, ideas, suggestions or questions. For those of you who want to listen on the go, there's also a link to the podcast space on the iTunes store from whence you can download episodes to media players that support the iTunes format. But that's enough information for now. I hope to have the pleasure of your company when we continue our exploration of the question, what is work? I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now.
You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.